0: Hit, so here i go oh So Of how they stopped our Joe. One night in Cleveland, oh, 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 goodbye, Street DiMaggio. <laughs> Straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards
1: K.A. Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, a.k.a. Half man, half podcast machine, back into Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's juicy, my freakishly freaky seamhead uh, audience? I'm happy to welcome all of you in this week for the very last show of the 2022 year. And I know, I say it every week, but I really want to give the audience a round of applause for helping me make this passion project come to life. I mean, without you guys, without you good brothers and sisters, I'm just like this corny old dude on a microphone talking to himself. So, thank you from the bottom of my black soul, and. M- With this being the last show of the 2022 season, I thought it would be kind of cool to share with the audience some of those uh, behind-the-scenes metrics of BKP from the past 12 months. Uh, First and foremost, Backwards K-Pod has a very good international... uh, Fandom, it's been downloaded in 23 countries worldwide this year. Not just, you know, baseball powerhouse countries like the Dominican Republic, Japan, Puerto Rico, Australia, Venezuela, South uh, South Korea, and Mexico. But also like these non-traditional baseball countries like India, Belgium, Nigeria, France, Russia, the UK, and Saudi Arabia. Just to name a few. And here... Let me pull back the curtain uh, even further and give you a little peek on what's really been going on here the past 12 months. And right now, the numbers are down a smidge right now, but I expected that. It's, you know, uh, last year this time, it was really slow, and there was some work stops going on last year, plus you got, you know, the king of American sports, football, it's going into the playoff stretch right now, you got NBA college hoops, they're doing their thing, so... You know, right now, they're down a little bit, but I expected that. Uh, they're down, but they're still very good. And I just want to give some transparency to the audience because you make up the success or, you know, you, you deem the future of the show. So, I'm going to get, get real transparent with you, and I'll One second. Now, in the past year, I've been downloaded in every state except for four, which... You know, it makes me laugh and horrified at the same time. Those states are South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, and Alaska. Although, I do know for a fact that I have people from Alaska who enjoy the show, but they just live somewhere else now. So, yeah, full transparency. The show has never been played in those four states, which, folks, I'm going to admit, it kind of makes sense for those four in particular, and a part of me can laugh that off, but my ego is having a hard time with it as I've literally become obsessed with those four fucking states. And if any of you team heads know someone in South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Alaska, please share this pod with them. My God, I mean, really. It's like a scab that I've been picking at for the last week since I saw of these numbers. I want those states by the end of next year. Now, the top five states... And downloads are as followed. My home state, Maryland, number five. Thank you. Thank you so much. And California is like right behind them. So you got six, California, five, Maryland. Florida, number four, coming through strong for me all the time. Uh, Pennsylvania comes in at number three, which they've always supported me in my endeavors since day one. And I have genuine friends until I die from there. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Number two is Illinois, which I told you. Me and the city of Chicago, we're, we're kindred souls, baby. I don't know what it is, but since the beginning of my show, Illinois and the shy have taken to me. And I love that town. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Illinois. My God, the love. I'd be tempted to move there if the right radio gig came around. Just I'm just saying and the number one downloaded state for 2022 is my current home state of South Carolina, which is to be expected. The show has been passed around all over the place here in Pauly's Island. It's been very well received. I have lived all over the country. But this is truly my home. I have the support of the community. It's beautiful here. Good, simple folks who look out one another. My only regret in life is that I didn't know this place long before I, I moved here. But again. I've been downloaded all over our great country with the exception of the Evil 4. But I'm going to change that. California, Washington State, Texas, New York, New Jersey. They ran out my top 10. And hopefully, I'll see those New York numbers push up after today's show. Now, let's take a look at the international metrics for 2022 real quick. Which is a much harder sell. For American baseball, as I'm sure many of you can imagine, right? And again, BKP it's been downloaded in 23 countries all around the world. The top five countries outside of the U.S. mainland. We'll go backwards. Number five, believe it or not, it's Russia. I I, I can't explain it. It's not a traditional baseball country. Also. Aren't they at war or something? But but look, someone in that country is listening regular, regularly to uh, Backwards k pop. My thoughts, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's an American doing something over there he probably shouldn't be doing. But the numbers don't lie. Someone is listening regularly in Russia. Maybe it's Putin. You never know. The fourth most downloads internationally. It goes to the United Kingdom. Again, not a traditional power, but it kind of makes sense. I got my boy Mark Zolgile over there. You may remember uh, Mark from the Vince Scully tribute show, which we did together. If you never heard the Vince Scully show, check it out in the archives, wherever you listen to your pods, or go to my website, DiamondsnakeJank.Poppy.com, to hear Scully or any of my other shows. So, yeah, Mark is probably driving force there. Hopefully, he's not the only one there, but. He's the heavy lifter, and I thank you, Mark. You're a good fan. You're a good fan, and uh, you know, you've been even a better friend through the years to me. Coming in at number three is Australia. And look, I got my great friend Leo Jane that lives over there. And I know he's as diehard on this show as anyone, but my boy, he only lives in uh, the Victoria area of Australia. I got listeners all over Australia, Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales. I've covered over 95% of that content in downloads. Amazing. Thank you, Australia, so much for your support. Man, it's just humbling, folks. At number two is Puerto Rico. Again. I got super fan Ozzy Cruz down there, but the whole island has downloads. It's absolutely amazing and humbling. Ozzy, he's truly one of my best friends on the planet. I've never said this, but traveling to Puerto Rico to do a show with that dude is absolutely on my bucket list. Yeah, life is about trust, and there are very few people I trust in my inner circle more than Ozzy Cruz. Thank you for your friendship and your trust, brother, and spreading The gospel of BKP. And the number one foreign market to download BKP in 2022 was... Yell out some guesses. The number one foreign market for BKP downloads was... Our Cousins in the North. The best border country anyone could ask for. Canada, eh? That's right. Number one foreign market by far by thousands of downloads. Only three territories in Canada did I feel to make a connection with. And that was Yukon, Manitoba, and Nunavut, which I never even heard of. But you know, as an ignorant American, it it all looks like vast wilderness, you know, the farther north you go to me as far as when I look at a map of Canada. So I'm not so disappointed. About not capturing them or the Yukon. I, I feel like they have a bigger issues probably in their life than American baseball. Ontario, regional home of the Jays. They came out to support the Orioles fan in numbers. Thank you very much. British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Quebec, Alberta. Even the Northwest Territories. They all came through for a good brother. And Canada, I truly love you. And I mean it when I say, you are the greatest border that a country could ever ask for. And this country and I will always have your back. I'm kind of enjoying this end of the year transparency. So let's do one last thing before we get on to this week's topic. Let's take a look at the most downloaded shows of 2022. Well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look at the metrics on where you guys listen to my show real quick. The platforms that you use. And I'll look at the top seven cents. Those are all platforms that have been used over a hundred times. The seventh most used platform for BKP is Facebook, which that's a good thing for me. It means people read these uh, weekly promos that I put out and then they hit the link. And that's very interesting for me to know that's good data. I wasn't really sure if anyone ever uses that link. Number six is the Overcast platform. Number five is Google Chrome. Uh, Number four is iHeartRadio. Number three is Apple Podcasts, which, you know, Apple puts out the most, you know, they probably garner the most listens, but kind of have this love-hate thing with Apple Podcasts, quite honestly. And I love Apple products. I use iPhones and iPads and all that shit, but I don't like their podcast system. They won't even let me use my logo. I'm not a really big fan of Apple Podcasts platform, kind of. But they came in at number three. They probably should be number one, but people look at that goofy-ass fucking logo that, that they make me use, and no one's going to listen to it. Spotify is number two, which is the platform I use and wholeheartedly endorse. They at least let me use my fucking logo. And the number one platform used to listen to BKP is the Podbean app. And that kind of surprises me, but thank you. And that also includes, uh, you know, whenever you use my website, Domestakejake.podbean.com. Okay, so there are the top seven ways that people heard the show last year. And now, what we've all been waiting for, the 10 most downloaded shows of 2022. Now, keep in mind that shows early in the year, they got more chances to be downloaded. It doesn't necessarily mean that these are the best shows. I expect last week's uh, show on Bob Euchre, which is doing really well. I expect that show to be towards the top at the end of 2023, considering the trajectory that it's on right now. So, again, not necessarily the best shows, but they're the most downloaded, even though they are strong shows. And these, ladies and gentlemen, are the most downloaded BKP shows of the year. The 10th most downloaded show of 2022 was Dodger Stadium. And that's one of my favorites. And it's got an incredible backstory of sadness. And the engineering marvel, uh, you know, carbon a fucking stadium out of a mountain. I mean, it's unbelievable what went into making Dodger Stadium. That comes in at number 10. At number 9, This Week in Baseball with Mel Allen. Uh A look at that, you know, the historic baseball show of the 1980s and 1990s. That is number 9. The number 8 most downloaded show is Wrigley Field. And there's a lot of history there. Chicago's always coming through for me. They come in at number eight. Number seven, Fenway Park. One of my favorite shows. I mean, I learned so much about baseball and Boston during that one. Number six, Eddie Fainer, the king and his court. And folks, I'm so glad that this show went over. It was kind of at the beginning of doing the show. I was nervous doing one that, you know, it's not your traditional baseball story, but man, what a story, and it looks like y'all liked it as well, and it came in at number six, so that leads us into the top five, the fifth most downloaded BKP show from 2022 is uh, George Steinbrenner, the boss, love that story as well, It changed my perception of the man. Not necessarily so much of the boss, but certainly the man. And it's definitely struck a chord with me. And I have a whole newfound respect for George after doing that show. The fourth most downloaded story is the death of the Montreal Expos. Now this is certainly one of my favorites. And I'm a little biased. I was a huge Expos fan. And I had so much fun doing that research there and telling that sad tale. That comes in at number four. The third most downloaded show is The Big Red Machine. And folks, The Big Red Machine, it came out like a machine. It's by far the most listened to show in the first 24 hours after its release. By far. People love that team. And apparently, they love that show. The second most listened to and downloaded show in 2022 is uh, the first show, Roberto Clemente. He is... uh, He's very special to me. He's the face of the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. And that show, it gave me the confidence to keep putting these out. And that brings us to the most listened show of 2022, the most downloaded show of 2022. And that was Nolan Ryan, the Ryan Express. and. Look, man, I mean, the bottom line is one can never underestimate the romantic power of Nolan Ryan, for sure, as his show is the king of the backwards K-Pod mountain after one year. Will he still be there next year? It's hard to say. But I'm sure we're going to revisit this next December. That was kind of fun. I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. Just wanted to get my amazing CMED audience to peek behind the curtain, and uh, you know, I thought we'd just take a little look back. I, I, I'm nothing without you. I'm just a voice. My goal, my number one mission, in the mission statement was to leave my voice behind, share the game with the future generations, with your loyalty and fandom. I'm accomplishing my dream, and I hope the 2023 topics that I have for you, they will leave the same kind of impression that these are having. And I truly look forward to sharing them with you. And look, I tell you guys all the time, I don't want to take myself very serious, but I do take this work serious. I'm a solid number two pitcher in the rotation. I'm dependable. You're going to win more than you lose with me on the ball. Deep down, I know I got the, uh, you know, I haven't reached, you know, ace maximum potential yet. But I'm on the cusp. I'm Grayson Rodriguez, baby. 2023 is where we're going to take this thing to the next fucking level. I learned a lot in my rookie season here at Pie Bean. And you ain't seen nothing yet. So brace yourself, mother effer. To quote my boy Orioles GM Mike Elias when talking about going into the offseason with the surprisingly surging Orioles of last year, you know he, he said, "It's time for liftoff. Now, now, not quite like that. Not like the Orioles liftoff was signing Kyle Gibson and trading for James McCann from the Mets. That's more like you know, like a fart in church. I, I still love you, Elias, but but damn, I'm talking a real lift off, folks. I'm taking this show to the next level. And many of you can say many things about me, both positive and negative, but I deliver when I promise, always. And I'll bring the bunk next year, so stick around and smell what the snake is cooking. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, as you can see from the analytics that I presented to you, virtually anywhere you listen to your pods, or you can go to my website, diamondsnakejink.poppy.com to listen to this or any of my other pods I've ever done. I will never charge you for the content here at BKP. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I don't need to dig into my audience's pocket for their nickels and dimes to make this shit work. As far as I'm concerned, no one should ever have to pay for a podcast show. I've never heard one that I would pay to listen to. So, folks, I don't do this for the money. I make a couple dollars here and there, and sure, I'm an American capitalist just like you who would love to make more money, but not the sake of free content on a fucking podcast platform. I do, however, take five-star donations, well-written reviews as payments. If you're on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scurred. This helps me to continue to do this thing that I'm most passionate about in the world, podcasts and baseball. The more reviews I get, the higher up the search engines we go. So, more c can find us, and that helps me to add steak with the beans and rice on the dinner table for my family. So, please, please, I beg you, rate and review me, and keep the baby snakes from starving. Okay, so... Enough with all this, right? Most of y'all, y'all know the deal. Every week, for the past 51 weeks, Backwards K Pod has covered about 160 years of MLB baseball. I mean, Major League Baseball. 160 years, folks. From the days of the Cincinnati Red and the Boston Red Stockings, who would eventually become the Atlanta Braves, all the way up to the story, story of the recently retired. Baseball icon, Albert Paul I've done it all. From bios of individuals like Roberto, Mr. Ricky, Henry Aaron. I've covered memorable teams like the now-defunct Expos, the Gas House Gang, the Big Red Machine. i would covered baseball and pop culture, the Baseball Bunch, This Week in Baseball, the Sandlot. I've covered every freaking stadium in use right now from the oldest on up, from Fenway, All the way up to guaranteed rate field at this point. That's 90 years of baseball stadium construction. I've covered throwback cribs in Crosley Field, Polo Ground, Shy Park. I've covered baseball infamy and Scandal in the Pittsburgh Drug Trials, the Mud Jet Bandits, the Death of Ray Chapman. We paid tributes to legends that we lost this year with Ben Scully Shell and Gaylord Perry. And folks, I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I go through my catalog and in all humility, I just don't see how any truth Man of the game can bypass his pod. I love the fact that at my advanced age, I am still learning about baseball almost every day of my life, and it's because of this show. If I were to drop dead today, I would be so proud of what I've left behind on this program. But to the thrill of many and the disappointment of others, the snake ain't done yet. I got so much more up my sleeves, which you know, it's kind of ironic because the snake ain't got no arms. He needs sleeves, baby. But I digress. So, going all the way back to episode one, and no, not the you know Phantom Menace. I'm talking about Roberto Clemente. I put a lot of thought into who would be show one. I needed a baseball player that is almost universally loved and respected. Someone every single baseball fan can rally around. And a player that would be jump, you know, like a jumping all point. So, in retrospect, the second most listened to show in 2022, next to Nolan Ryan, I think I accomplished my goal there. And in between, I tried to keep stories diverse, make sure all the teams are represented. But I wanted a topic that would be up to par with Clemente to bookend this mother. And after much thought and consideration, and maybe along with a little pleading from my man Jim Quest out in Oregon, there might have been a little bribing there. Thanks for that $50, Questy. But look, it has to be a true icon. Preferably someone who transcends the 20th century. Someone who not only impacted baseball, but America as a growing mainstream and world power. And with that in mind, I decided, decided to end the year talking about Jolton Joe DiMaggio, the Yankee Clipper. He was without a shadow of a doubt one of the most recognizable and popular men in the 20th century in America. A whole generation of Americans, both black and white, they grew up with DiMaggio as a living, breathing extension of their social and sports conscience. Folk singer uh, Paul Simon, Art Garfunkel, their hit song, Mrs. Robinson, they ask a question. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation turns our lonely eyes to you. What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? jolton joe has left and gone away and it is so true because in many respects joe was the last of his kind in his era he's been remembered in song literature featured as an iconic hero of his time he was married briefly to the hottest chick in our planet if not the you know in our country if not the planet The hottest glamour girl of all time. I mean, don't get me started on Marilyn Monroe. My God. On May 16, 1999, the U.S. House of Reps, by bipartisan vote, which, you know, that never happens anymore. God, those were the good old days. Well, they passed a resolution honoring Joe for his storied baseball career, for his many, many contributions to the uh, country throughout his life, and for transcending baseball and becoming a symbol of talent, commitment, and achievement. But first and foremost, before Maryland and, you know, Congress honoring him, first and foremost, Joe DiMaggio was about baseball to his core. Herb Kane from his hometown newspaper, in the San Francisco Chronicle, they once wrote that baseball isn't about statistics. Baseball is Joe DiMaggio rounding second base. And when I read that quote, I-, I can see this ball player that I've never seen play before rounding second like a pimp, right? Jolton fucking Joe. The Yankee Clipper. The undisputed leader of the Yankees team that won nine chips in his amazing 13-year career. That ran from 1936 to 1951. With three prime years, lost to World War II during his playing career. He gathered three AL MVPs, he holds a record that many agree is one of the, you know, unbreakables when he hits in 56 consecutive games in 1941. A number that has never been seriously challenged except maybe Pete Rose in 1978 when I was seven years old. He hit in 44 straight games with the Reds. As the son of immigrants, he was the embodiment of the American dream. In the young but rapidly grown country. And side boy here. Sometimes things in life were just about the right person at the right time. And his Italian heritage in the Bronx and in New York City, it was way over. He really was like the perfect person for that city at that time. And, you know, in here, follow me on this pivot, if you will. Much like Bruno San Martino was the perfect WWF champion back in that day. Because... Of this growing Italian population in New York City. Joe, Joe was a true Italian, living that, you know, rags to riches storyline, and he was living it out in the iconic pinstripes. Joseph Paul DiMaggio was born Giuseppe Paolo DiMaggio on November 24th, 25th, 1914, in Martinez, California, which is located about 25 miles northeast of San Francisco. His parents, Giuseppe and Rosalia, they had immigrated there from Sicily sometime around the turn of the century, and after the birth of Joe, Joe, the DiMaggio unit, they moved to San Francisco where his father continues his occupation as a fisherman to feed his family, and Joe was the eighth of nine DiMaggio siblings. And he was one of five sons. Two of his brothers, Vince and Dominic, they would go on to play in the major leagues. Joe had no interest whatsoever in joining the other two brothers in the family tradition of being a fisherman. Instead, Joe would spend his summer days playing for like, you know, several amateur and semi-pro teams in in you know the baseball-rich San Francisco. And another sidebar here. Joe and his father, they they had a strained relationship in Joe's teenage years. And his father was this proud Italian immigrant. He had a hard time understanding baseball. To him, it was just a frivolous game. And there was a lot of friction between the two. And Joe emphatically told him that he would never be a fisherman. There was something else for him in the world. And his father, being this immigrant, he just didn't understand it. He wasn't fully ingratiated quite yet, into the American concept. Joe's a young kid. He's going to American schools. He's learning to speak English. is ingratiated. And he decides, I ain't going to be no fisherman, whether you like it or not. His 19-year-old brother, Vince, who at that time was playing for the San Francisco Seals in the legendary Pacific Coast League, he would convince Seals manager Ike Cavani to give his 17-year-old brother a chance when the shortstop went down with an injury for the rest of the 1932 season. Joe played in the final three games of that season, and the team signed him to a $225 a month contract for the 1933 season. And another side note here, uh, $225 a month in 1933, it has the purchasing power of about $4,800 in the 2022 economy. So, not bad for a summer job. I mean, I got to think, you got to catch a lot of fish to match that. So, the wheels have been set in motion. And Joe is officially a semi-pro ball player. Now, in the beginning of the season, the Seals decided there was really no need to develop him to continue to play shortstop. Uh, Joe had an erratic arm, so they moved the 18-year-old to the outfield. And Joe makes up for that arm by destroying league pitching with a batting average of three forty-one and a Pacific Coast League record of 61-game hitting streaks. So... He not only owns the MLB record, but he also owns the PCL record history. But a knee injury in August, that put his rookie year on the shelf, unfortunately or ironically, uh, maybe fortunately. That knee injury, it gave MLB teams pause and offering him a contract. The Yankees figured, what the hell? They they offered the Seals uh, a $25,000 contract to buy his contract and five other players. But... With the understanding that Joe remained with the Seals in 1935 to prove that that rehab knee, uh, that rehab knee was not going to be a, tr- a problem. Dimaggio accepts the challenge. The Seals accept the contract, and Joe goes on to prove that 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 knee, that knee is fine. He torches the league pitching with a 3.98 average, 34 home runs, and 154 RBI. So, it, of course, in 1936. The Yankees are satisfied. They bring them on the board. Now, the Yankees at this time, they're still a baseball power, but they're not quite a superpower anymore. There's like this void after Babe Ruth was traded two years earlier, as you can, you know, expect. So Joe comes into spring training as a blue chip prodigy with huge expectations and immense pressure. Don Daniels of the Sporting News covering the Yankees in camp that year. He wrote that the Yankee fans regard him as Moses, sent by God to deliver the team out of the second place wilderness that, that they find themselves in. And again, the determined Joe, he accepts the challenge. He makes the team out of spring training about halfway through the season. Uh, the Yankees fans realize they got a star. <laughs> and halfway through the season, the rest of the fans in the league, I can only assume were like, oh, shit. I mean, he's hitting a tick under three hundred and fifty going into the All-Star break. He's named a starter in right field in that Midsummer Classic. By the end of the year, Joe has captured the imagination of the baseball universe and the country. He's got his visage on the cover of Time magazine. And in his rookie year, he treated the A.O. hurlers with total disrespect. He posted a 323 batting average, 29 bombs, and 125 RBI. DiMaggio was probably one of the first ballplayers in the history of the game that you could call a five-tool guy. Maybe Garrick. I'm, I'm sure there are others, but I, I apologize. My mind is drawing a blank off the top. I mean, who may have been a five-tool guy before him? And if you have any opinions, leave me a message. But I'm kind of drawing a blank on this. Maybe, maybe uh, Jimmy Fox? Maybe I, I don't know what his wheels were like. Anyway, DiMaggio is your classic five-tool guy. He may have stunk as an infielder, but he put that work in and the pride and that you would expect from Joe. And he became an elite fielding outfielder. His arm was better suited for the outfield. He could run. He could hit. He could hit for power. That's God fucking given. Again, after one year, this dude is elite. He is Mike Trout in the 1930s. Yankees manager from 1931 to 1956. Joe McCarthy called him the best base runner he ever saw. Aggressive but intelligent. It was rare to see Joe throw it out on the base pass because of a brain fart. His all round dominance was incomparable. By 1936, his game was evolved, and it's mature. And he has clearly accepted the challenge of filling the babe's shoes, which, let's face it, those are some big fucking shoes. The 21-year-old king of New York, he leads the Bombers to the first of four straight World Series champions. And after that series, he returns home to San Francisco to a hero's welcome where the city mayor, Angelo Rossi, gives him a key to the city. And despite leading the Bronx Bombers to a back-to-back titles in uh, 1937, leading the AL in home runs, slug, total bases, Joe finishes second in AL MVP voting behind Tiger slugger Charlie Geringer. In 1939, after his fourth World Series chip, he finally gets that MVP hardware. And that's when he led the league with his career best 381 batting average. That would be the first of his three MVP awards. And following his stellar year that year, he marries 21-year-old Dorothy Arnold, a singer-slash-dancer actress he met on the set of the movie, The Manhattan Go Round, where, you know, he had like a bit part in the flip. After winning a second consecutive batting title in 1940, The Yankees' Clipper star has shined even brighter. In 41, Joe sets one of the game's big boy records as the eyes of the nation are on him when he hits in 56 straight games. On May 15th, day one of the streak, the Yankees are in fourth place. And Joe is struggling out of the gate. He's got a 194 average in 20 games. And, you know, Yankee fans are getting a little bit restless, right? It's a God-given right to win World Series. And everybody better perform A month later, June 17th, DiMaggio, 30th straight hit. It breaks the Yankees hitting streak record held by shortstop Roger Peckinpal, a guy we covered in the Death of Ray Chapman uh, story. And uh, Roger Peckinpal, he said that uh, that hitting streak, 30 hitting streak, 30 games, what was it? It It's 29 game hitting streak. He said that back in 1919. And it was also equaled by Earl Combs in 1931. And as this streak is rolling along, it's gradually becoming a huge snowball, a national obsession. Anywhere you went, you were bound to hear someone ask, Did he get one today? Radio programs across the country were constantly being interrupted for news about the streak. On June 29th, in a doubleheader versus Washington, he gets hits in both games. The second game in that twin bill, Joe hits a single in the seventh inning to pass brown slugger George Sisler and his 41-game streak that he set in 1922. And Sisler's streak was always referred to as the modern record. And that was to distinguish, distinguish his record from uh, the possible Orioles' Wee Willie Keeler's 44-game history in 1897, which was considered the all-time record. But I do think it's kind of ironic looking back in retrospect. And again, this is just a historian's perspective. You know, uh, 1922 is considered the modern game, but it's really not the modern game. It's still caveman-like, and it's still... Uh, no one has smashed the color line, okay? So, it's really not the modern game, but whatever, we're just, it's just something that I thought about while I was doing the research here. So, all respect to He breaks Slugger's 41-game streak that he set in 22, but... Now the all time, which they considered that the, the modern record, which it really wasn't modern record because it's not integrated baseball yet. We will Keeler's forty four game hit streak in uh, 1897 is actually considered the all time record at this time on July second. Joe Joe DiMaggio breaks Keeler's record with a fifth inning home run off the Red Sox pitcher Dick Newsom. Fifteen days later, the incredible record would end at Municipal Stadium before a crowd of sixty-seven thousand four hundred sixty-eight fans. At that time, it was the largest crowd to ever watch a night game. Indians third baseman Ken Keltner, he made two spectacular catches to rob Joe of hits. I mean, uh, plays to rob Joe of hits. And that was it. The streak was over. Over the course of that fifty-six game hit streak, the Yankees moved from fourth place, five and a half games behind first place, and uh, they went uh, from five and a half back to a seven-game lead over Cleveland and the first place spot. Not many talk about it, but. DiMaggio went on to hit in the next 16 games after that streak was snapped. So, who knows? Had Kellner not robbed Joe, we could have seen a jaw-dropping, you know, 73-game hitting streak right here. It's quite possibly, quite possibly, one of the most amazing feats, you know, in-season feats pulled off on a ball field. Maybe in American sports. He struck out a mere five times and 223 at-bats during that streak. I repeat again, he struck out five times and two hundred twenty-three at bats during that streak. In fact, the whole year he only amassed thirteen strikeouts. Huh? The clever bat at three hundred five in nineteen forty-two—the lowest average of his first seven years. But, you know, it's three hundred five though. The Yankees would win the AL pennant that year, but they lost to the Cards in the World Series, marking it as the only World Series loss DiMaggio would suffer in 10 trips to the dance in his career. In 1943, Joe enlisted himself in the United States Army Air Force, and like many big leaders at that time, Joe never saw combat, as he spent the majority of his tenure as like this morale booster instructor, and he's playing baseball for these service squads, After his return home from duty in Honolulu due to painful ulcers, he was granted a medical discharge in September of 1945. Soon thereafter, he he and his wife, uh, Dorothy, they get divorced, and uh, Dorothy takes the son, Joe Joe Jr., in custody. The following season, 1946, is a tough one for the new 31-year-old DiMaggio. His 290 average and 95 RBIs are below his high standards as night, the 1947 season is getting nearer and nearer. The Yankees announced that Joe will have surgery to remove a bone spur from his left heel. In January, the doctors removed that three inch spur. Two months later, physicians had to go back in there. They had to perform a skin graft uh, surgery procedure to close the slow healing wound. On April 20th, he makes the first start of the season. He drops three dogs on the A's. But by the end of April, he's batting a minuscule 143. However, Jolton Jolly begins to warm up. Uh, four for five gamers, the Red Sox, on May 25th. That put him over 300 for the first time all year. And... The team is responding to the resurgent DiMaggio. On June 3rd, led by Joe's four hits, the Yankees shut out the Tigers 3 0, and DiMaggio is now batting a league leading 368. He's hit safely in 16 straight games since May 18th. He's abusing AL pitchers with a 493 average during that span, and the Yankees moved to first place on June 5th with a doubleheader sweep of the Browns. A 19-game winning streak by the Yanks between June and July and pushed them 11 and a half games ahead of Detroit. By the last game of the season, Joe had spearheaded a Yankees offensive attack that had left the Tigers in the dust by 12 games, and the Yankees snatched the AL pennant. By the end of the season, uh, DiMaggio's stats were again under pre-war levels, but... You know, he's still productive. He's batting three fifteen with a career-low uh, 20, 20 home runs, 97 RBIs. Those 97 ribs were the second low of his career. But they were good enough for the third most in the American League. Even though Ted Williams had surpassed Joe in virtually every offensive category. In fact, he led the whole AL in virtually every offensive cat- category. As the splendid splinter bashed his way to a second triple crown. But just like back in 1941, William again played second pillar to DiMaggio, who won his third AL MVP on the basis of his all-round play, and the fact that the Yankees were back in the World Series for the first time, you know, in like four years, uh, you know, 1943. Joe was awarded eight first-place votes compared to the three that Ted received, and he was edged by a mere point difference of 202 to 201, and Side note here, folks. I would love to know the metrics and the demographics of where these voters, these writers were from. And I've told you before, as a historian, I don't like to judge a lot of things in 2020 hindsight, but I am curious to hear what you think about these two tight MVP crowns that go to the Clipper. Send me your thoughts. at backwardskpod.gmail.com Although, the magic only bats... 231 in the 1947 World Series. He does have some memorable moments versus those trolley Dodgers out of Brooklyn. He drops Dong twice in the series, including one in Game 5, that would lead the Yankees to a 2-1 to victory. But the most memorable DiMaggio moment of that series was actually a long fly ball out in Game 6. In the bottom of the 6th inning at Yankee Stadium. The Bombers are trailing, they define two men on, two outs. You got Snuffy Sternweiss at second, Yogi at first. And the shadow DiMaggio, it looms large at the dish as Dodgers pitcher Joe Hatton stares in. Now, DiMaggio hammers the pitch, absolutely cut that ball in half. And it is headed to the left center field bully area. Now, earlier in that uh, inning, with the Yankees coming in to bat... Dodgers manager, Burt Schott, and he made a defensive replacement out in left field, and he subbed in 5'6", inch defensive specialist, Al Gianfrido, for Eddie Mixes. And going back to the that ball, the ball is carrying, it's carrying, it's carrying, it's continuing to carry, and Gianfrido, he's tracking. He's scampering. He's tracking. Back to the wall. At the very last second, he leaps to rob Joe of a game-tying three-run blast. The catch was not only the final out of the inning, but it ends the last threat that the Yankees had to offer that day, and the Dodgers win a win to force a game seven, which the Yankees would clinch for their 11th World Series in their team's history. But most of the buzz inside Yankee Stadium was the reaction that Joe elicited after that blast and robbery by Gianfrito when he angrily kicked at the dirt as he was headed into second base. And it it was so out of the norm for this almost always stoic ball player. The fans were fascinated by this because, you know, it just wasn't something that you saw from him. And I can't stress to you how important it was to Joe for him to protect his brand. Well, that is his competitive type A personality. He was a man driven by self-pride and the athletic challenge of perfection. If DiMaggio made an error out in center field, the Yankees fans would cheer because it was something so rarely seen. He was a good-looking man who was a symbol of his times, a time when men wore hats and a tie. The only difference is Joe's suits were tailored perfectly to his athletic physique. Again, everything is perfect. At least that is the public perception that he's putting out there. There are times in his life when he's a recluse hermit and he's desperately avoiding the public. 1948 would prove to be DiMaggio's last great season, statistically speaking, of course. He played in 153 games, despite laboring through the recurring and painful bone spurs. His 39 home runs, 155 RBI, 355 total bases, and led the American League. And he finished second in MVP voting to Indians player manager Lou Boudreau, who led the tribe both on the field and in the dugout to their last World Series title. And those damn bone spurs that continue to play the Yankee Clipper and in contrast uh, to his amazing 1948 season, the 48-49 season was the worst of his career. Although his midseason return that year it cemented his re- reputation as you know the inspirational catalyst that greased the wheels for the superpower Yankees machine. After that 1949 season, and with the New York tabloid-style press running a muck, speculating that Joe was at the end of his career, DiMaggio begins to isolate himself from the world and his hotel room, especially on the road. In mid-June, he realizes, "Hey, my healing feels pretty good. The pain was gone." Two weeks later, he makes his season debut against their rival Red Sox at Fenway Park. Game one of the series, June 28th, Jolton Joe drove in two, he scores twice in a 5-4 victory. The next day, he clobbers two home runs with four four RBIs in another win. The third game, DiMaggio drops, dong two more times, drives in three, leading the Yankees to the series sweep, and thus stretching New York's lead to eight games over Boston. The Brazilian Red Sox, though, they would scratch and claw their way back with a late-season surge and would eventually take a one-game lead over the Yankees with two games left to play in the boogie down. DiMaggio himself had been hospitalized in September with pneumonia, but he was in the starting lineup when that final series started. On October 1st, forever known as Joe DiMaggio Day, in front of 70,000 adoring fans in a house that Ruth built, Joe was flanked by his brother Dom. And his mother. And the Yankees organization, they laud him with special, you know, gifts and and probably, you know, speeches and gifts. And at the end of the ceremony, Tomasio has like his Lou Gehrig luckiest man in the world moment when he ends his speech with, I want to thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. Still weakened by pneumonia, he told manager Casey Stengle he was probably good for about three innings. Instead, he plays the whole game with the Yankees trailing four to nothing. Uh, trailing with the Yankees trailing four to nothing, Joe doubled in the fourth and was later driven in, propelling the Yankees to a comeback win, by to four, which meant the two teams were playing for all the marbles in the last regular season game of the season. In the eighth inning of that game, Bobby Door of the Red Sox he hit a triple that Joe's weary legs couldn't catch up to. And whenever I watch old film with Dimaggio in center field, he reminds me a lot of former Jay center fielder Devon White. And some of you older cats my age, they might you know you might remember him, hell of a defender out there in center field. And like him, Clipper was just you know smooth as silk, just this elegant strider who looked like he could cover more ground with less steps. And everything with Joe was beautiful. And again, it's a man who takes pride in his pursuit of perfection. So when Door hits that triple pass him, first of all, there's a hush murmur racing through the crowd. And Joe has his head down and shame. And he's out there, he, he's seething in the outfield. And he's drained of his energy and he's realizing that he's a detriment to, to the team. The prideful uh, stoic ball player, he lowers his head. And with no prompting, he ran it from the outfield straight to the dugout. And that, my Seam Head audience, is everything you need to know about DiMaggio right there. The Yankees won that game 5-3, and they captured the pennant again. The Yankee Kip- Clipper played in 139 games in 1950. He hit 301 with 32 home runs and 122 RBI. He led the league with a 583 slug. and 51, Father time and injuries have finally caught up to Joe. It's it's like the great line in Moneyball where the scout tells Billy Bean, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing here every player has a shelf life, and the game will tell all ball players when your time is done. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 20 years from now, but the game will tell you when it's over. And for me, that's one of the truest lines in all of baseball movies. Uh, the game told all all of us in the CMED audience when it was over, and if it hasn't yet, eventually it will. And the game was telling Joe, it's over. On December 11th, 1951, after a season that saw him hit two sixty-three with 12 home runs, the 36-year-old Yankee Clipper called it a career saying, if I can't do it right, I don't want to play anymore. In six years, he uh, the six years that he played after serving in the U.S. military, Joe was still the leader and conscience of those dynastic Yankee teams that won the World Series for his final three seasons. And even though he won those two MVPs in 47 and 48, overall his post-war numbers were not up to his standards as compared to before the war. And the bottom line is, it bothered Joe. Teammate Phil Rizzuto, Scooter, he once said, the, you know after the war, Joe was older, and he had those recurrent bone spurs, and baseball, baseball just wasn't as much fun for Joe anymore." And he said he noticed that when he came back from military duty. Given the relative brevity of his career, Joe's numbers may not have the gaudy numbers of many of his contemporaries who played the game, but that was just a microcosm of DiMaggio, the ball player, yet you had to see him on film to get it. It wasn't just about his sick ass numbers in a short career. It's how he did it. Quite frankly, it's how he looked doing it. DeMaggio was always a level or two above everyone, save for maybe Ted Williams, Stan Muser, and Willie Mays at that time. You didn't have to comb through his stats, even though he had them. The stats are just numbers on baseball reference. Joe had style. He had grace. He commanded respect through his elegance and stoicism as he played, as well as his play on the field. DiMaggio was a really controlled and measured person in public. He was very unflappable. He always had his emotions in check. It's what the Italians call sprezzatura. The ability to make all this shit look easy. He had an almost imperial presence about him. Like, instead of a ball player, maybe this dude is actually a royalty in some way. You know that's just the way he carries himself, and that's the way he played the game. That's the way he dressed. That was Joe fucking DiMaggio. But the truth is, internally, you know, Joe had inner turmoil that, that that belied his calm exterior many times. And whatever was going on inside of him, inside of him, he hid it very well from the public, and it manifested in the return of the officers that he that earned him a military discharge back in 1945. For all his popularity, Joe was an intensely private dude who was never comfortable in his role as anyone's hero. He was the face of a franchise, the face of one of the biggest cities in the world, the face and hero of Italian Americans throughout the country. It was a blessing, but it was also an unwanted burden. His dependable performance and his character, it made him the right man at the right time. And I talked about this at the beginning of the the, uh, show here. Sometimes it's just that simple. Here was a player that went about his work. Without bravado or flamboyance that you see from these so-called superstars today. Making upwards and sometimes over $30 million a year. But let's be honest. Not many of these dudes could carry Joe's bags. I guarantee you, you would never see Joe hit a home run and flip his bat like a child. He was the ideal icon for a nation struggling to climb out of the depths of the economic devastation left in the wake of the Great Depression, as well as the lives lost of World War II. In the world of today, now I call it the look at me generation. Me, 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 me. Look at me. I'm going to pound my chest for the slow-mo highlights later on ESPN. Ain't I special. DiMaggio understood his role as a public figure. He did his best to live up to that image. Of course, no one is perfect in this world. We're all flawed in our own ways. And I'll get into that a little bit. But his grace and style on the field, it translated well off the field as well as, you know, with his tailor suits, he was this quiet model of elegance. And look, I'm just going to come right out of it, you know. With it, uh, Joe was a really good-looking, good-looking man. As a man comfortable living in my own skin and sexuality, he's a dapper, smooth-ass pimp, and he's quite the cocksman. As the women were crazy for him. And sidebar, <laughs> a friend of mine, Questy, on there, at Oregon. We talked about him earlier. We had this debate a couple of days ago on who was the biggest cocksman in New York City as a New York Yankee during their career. Was it Joe, Mickey, or Jeter? <laughs> and yeah, that was a crazy conversation. But that's another story for another pot. <laughs> but yeah, that was some spirited banter though. And look, it was well thought out. As by the end, we agreed on the order. <laughs> What do you guys think? After the 1941 hitting streak and uh, following his military service in the war, he became a national baseball legend in the making. His ethnic background, which was often noted in pre- pre-war press, became increasingly irrelevant. His mainstream fame, and influenced the arts. Beautiful paintings of him throughout the years, and the Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, Broadway musical South Pacific, the sailors sing of a character, Bloody Mary, who has the sk- who has skin as tender as DiMaggio's glove. In Ernest Heming- Hemingway's classic novel, The Old Man in the Sea, the main protagonist, Santiago, he opines on how he must meet the moment and be worthy of his idol, Joe DiMaggio. And I told you earlier about the Paul Simon hit single from 1967, Mrs. Robinson. Unlike many stars who uh, eventually burn out in the Novas, Joe enjoyed a resurgence of his fame and adulation in his post-career. His legend and mystique was enhanced when he began dating and courting the Hollywood glamour girl and sex symbol of her time, Marilyn Monroe. Joe was head over heels in love with Marilyn. After three years of courtship, the couple married in January of nineteen fifty-four. Unfortunately, the union of the power couple of the day it lasts for only nine months. Uh, allegedly, Joe became overbearing, maybe even physical with his wife, I'm just giving you the research, the press, you know, they protect the star athletes back then, but there have been reports in the years that suggest there was, uh, you know, physical domestic problems in that marriage. The truth is, though, Dimashio adore his wife, but... He naively seemed to expect Marilyn to become, like, this domesticated house cat. Uh, A sit-at-home mom, have kids, cook and clean for killing the kids, go to PTA meetings. And honestly, Marilyn is in the prime of her career and artistic power. And look, she's type A, too. She has dreams. She has ambitions. She has a career. Joe's career is done. But she is approaching her zenith in the cosmos. And all that traditional 1950's horseshit, where the wife gets to have no say, control, or power over her ambitions. And side note, all the women Joe surely had at his disposal during after his career, he is surely smitten by Monroe, but his love and demands at some point become oppressive for her. DiMaggio begins showing up on movie sets, which Melon was flattered by in the beginning, but somewhere along the line, you know, DiMaggio begins censoring scenes and lines for, for her to, to, to say. He's giving the producers and directors a hard time, and it all came to a head during the filming of the movie The Seven-Year Itch. The movie has that iconic scene where the Monroe character stands over a subway grate, and her white dress blows upward by the force of the wind from a passing train. And if you've never seen it, get on your Google machine and check it out. I mean, you know, it's Marilyn Monroe, one of the hottest ticks ever. My God, wow smoking hot. The primal, DiMaggio, was on, on the set that day, and he absolutely hated that scene. He fought with the creative tights on the stages at stage, as well as with Marilyn at home over the scene, and, you know, it was considered super risque back then, but it's really not when you look at it. Thankfully, the producers and Marilyn, they stuck to their guns, as it truly is, you know, like I said, one of the most iconic scenes in 20th century motion pictures. And slowly but surely, Joe's beginning to realize they got different expectations for their marriage and current life. After the divorce, it was probably the lowest moment in Joe's life. And he began seeing a psychiatrist at the time, which he admitted was a blessing. Merritt would go on to marry playwright Arthur Miller, whom she eventually divorced. And she had a uh, you know fairly public love triangle choice with President Kennedy and his brother Robert. And the truth is, based on my research... All those dudes, unfortunately, they used up Monroe and threw away like garbage. But not Joe. Joe was probably the only one of those men who truly loved Marilyn. He always held out hope and sighed that they would remarry. When Monroe and Arthur Miller divorced, Marilyn was in a bad place. She's using drugs habitually at this time to uh, anesthetize her pain. She's placed in a hospital with severe depression. And she pleads with Joe to come and get her. And DiMaggio, he shows up immediately at the hospital, and he demands him to release his wife in his custo- custody immediately. He's politely rebuffed because, you know, these people know that, first of all, she's not to be released. And secondly, they know that, that, that uh, they haven't been married for years. Everybody knows. So the discussion becomes louder, and in the end, Joe says, Look, release my wife to me, or I will destroy this place with my bare hands, piece by piece. So the hospital finally obliges, and they release Marilyn to Joe. When Monroe tragically dies in 1962, it was Joe who took care of all of Monroe's funeral arrangements, and for 20 years, three times a week, he would have fresh roses delivered to her crib. 20 years he did this. And the only reason he stopped doing it was because the media found out. Years later at a game in Yankee Stadium, Clipper was on the field when Robert Kennedy came out to throw a first pitch. And you can just see the stain and the shade being thrown at him just by the look on Joe's face. After Marilyn's death, Joe disappears into relative obscurity before returning to the Major League Baseball as a vice president and coach for Charlie Finley's relocated A's in the 1968 season. During the uh, the 70s, he overcomes his shyness and he becomes like the spokesman for the New York uh, Bowery Bank as well as Mr. Coffee, coffee maker. And for much of his life thereafter, he pretty much remains in the public eye until his death... uh, Until his death. Uh, He's doing celebrity golf matches, baseball, card shows, old-timer games. And by limiting his personal appearances, but also rigidly protecting his privacy, the Yankee Clipper was able to maintain this mystique until his death. On October 12, 1998, Joe was admitted to Regional Memorial Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Two days later, he had open-heart surgery for lung cancer And he never fully recovered from that. He would die at his home on March 8th, 1999 at the age of 84. Sadly, he and his son Joe Jr. were estranged. Uh, Joe, who wound up homeless during his part of life, they had a lot of problems between the two. And when his father was on the deathbed, he was asked by a reporter, had he spoken to his father? And he said no. And when they asked him why, he said, well, when he wants me there... He'll let me know. Unfortunately, Joe never asked for him. And he left the world without the two of them reconciling. That's just fucking sad and pathetic. Junior would die a little more than two months after his father. On April 25th, 1999, two months after his death, the DiMaggio Monument was unveiled in Yankee Stadium Monument Park, joining Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, and Miller Huggins. The engraved inscription reads in part, a baseball legend, an American icon, Where? I'm sorry, let me say that again. The engraved inscription, it reads in part, a baseball legend, and an American icon. So, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Hmm. It's a hard question. I guess to simply put it, Nowhere, right? The era is long gone. But your memory, it remains in our American conscience. A stylish remembrance of a time when baseball was the undisputed king and America enjoyed uh, unprecedented prosperity and growth. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap this probably up. All kinds of books, magazines, Uh, YouTube interviews, a rather extensive list of places to go to learn more about Jolt and Joe. And before I bounce, let's take a look at those impressive Joe DiMaggio stats from his brilliant career. Three-time AL MVP, 13-year career, all with the Yankees, 9 World Series rings, and 10 appearances. Only Yogi Berra has more rings with 10. He missed three prime years to uh, military duty. 13 All Star appearances. Inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame with a fourth shot in 1955 with 88.8% per- of the vote. Uh, I'm having a hard time with understanding why it took four times for Joe DiMaggio to get in the Hall of Fame, but I guess that's another uh, story for another pie. The fourth time was the charm for DiMaggio. Uh, th- that amazes me. Four times. That's ridiculous. 13-year career, all with the Yankees, 1,736 games, 7,672 plate appearances, 1,390 runs scored, 2,214 hits, 389 doubles, 131 triples, 361 home runs, 1,537 RBI, 30 stolen bases, 9 times caught, and one of my favorite DiMaggio stats, 790 walks. And only 369 strikeouts. He averaged 74 walks for every 162 games. And only 34 strikeouts in that span. Folks, he averaged one strikeout almost every 20 at-bats. Right around one strikeout for... I think it was... Here it is. 18.4 at-bats. Unbelievably great hand-eye coordination. 325, 398, 579 slash... 977 OPS, 3,948 total bases, a in a 13 year career. He averaged 368 total bases a year, which is, you know, among the all time greats. A 155 OPS plus, which is ranked 25th all time, and it's tied with Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Mel Ott. So, there you have it, folks. We now have Joe DiMaggio in the collection. And with that being said, the first season of Backwards K-Pod is in the books. And I hope all of you had a great Christmas, a great uh, holiday, whatever you uh, celebrate. I hope everything was great for you. And now we sit here in the dawn of a new year. I just want to thank you, the audience for sharing your time with me the past 12 months. I'm honored to be your historian for all things baseball, and I'm ready to keep this shit moving. So everybody sit sit back, fasten your seatbelt, as I prepare to hit Hyperdrive in year 20- 2023. Again, plenty of stuff with Joe DiMaggio out there to read up on, so by all means, check out the life of this amazing ballplayer with such a short playing career. Joe accomplished a lot. And I found him to be a fantastic subject to study. You can find me on Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group page. Twitter, we're at back underscore K underscore podcast. Please subscribe to your YouTube, my YouTube channel, Backwards K Pod. Or you can email me at backwardskpod at gmail.com. And I think that's about it, you fucking seamhead freaks. Thank you for all your support. I can't wait to dip into the new year as the calendar for the new year has been mapped out. And the snake got a whole lot of goody-good about to open up the nostrils for you next year. In fact, with the DiMaggio story and 2022 already in the snake's rearview mirror, I chop the head off our baseball hydro only to see two more podcast shows grow in its place next week. The first story for 2023. We're going to talk about the 1989 earthquake series between Oakland and San Francisco. And I can remember being an 18-year-old kid when this happened. What a horrible moment for the most anti-climatic World Series ever in the history of the game. But look, that's another story for another pod. The first of 2023 here at Backwards Kenny Pod, where we collect ball players. And their stories I don't want to hear about any of you team dying from doing crazy shit on New Year's stay safe first of all I can't afford to lose audience members secondly you ain't gonna to want to miss these 2023 shows so you know stay safe Drink and drive responsibly. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch looking bored AF, by all means, put on a couple of turtlenecks, some long John sweatpants, multiple socks, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like Shea Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one interview, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Happy holidays, team Stay safe. Hey